Hey, everybody, welcome to Conspiracy the Show. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host this week, my favorite co-host of all, no co-host, but I do have a couple of guests. Very uncharacteristic for this podcast. We don't usually have guests. It's usually just me and a co-host. Case in point, Caitlin Cut, my co-host on Pretty Scary, which I would describe as the sister podcast to Conspiracy the Show. Pretty Scary Boo. Pretty Scary right? Boo, yes. I'm supposed to say that now still. It's still my vibe, Yeah, I feel. Yeah. Doing a little crossover episode here. Wow, so cool. And Caitlin and I are here to talk to Mia Donovan, filmmaker, uh, here to discuss her new documentary, Dope is Death. Mia, how's it going? Cool, thanks Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. We, Caitlin and I talked to Mia before on an episode of Pretty Scary about her previous documentary, which is called Deprogrammed. If you've never seen it, it's really good. It is about yeah. a cult deprogrammer with a whole lot of personality. And Ted <laughs> very, Patrick. Very charming cult deprogrammer. He's got a lot of verve. Black Lightning. Man. Very interesting guy. Yeah. But uh, we're talking about Mia's new documentary today, which is called Dope is Death. If you could give us just a quick elevator pitch synopsis of what it's about. So Dope is Death traces the history of community acupuncture to the Black Panthers and the Young Lords in the South Bronx, who in the early 70s founded the first community acupuncture clinic that treated people with uh, heroin addiction issues. And this story seems like one that was kind of lost to history. How did how did you first come across it? Well, I um, in Montreal, I have a I was visiting an acupuncturist for I have chronic migraines, and he was recommended to me. He's he's kind of an eccentric guy. Um, was working out of his apartment, and there was this poster on the wall that we, which we see in the documentary that said, "We will fight heroin and methadone by all means necessary. Acupuncture heals." Mm. educate the people and there were illustrations of black hands holding acupuncture needles and it said Dr. Matula Shakur just this really fascinating poster so I started asking him about it and then he just sort of told me nonchalantly how he went to the South Bronx in the 70s and taught Tupac Shakur's dad how some Black Panthers came to Montreal and I was like whoa like you know and just started telling me this and at first I didn't I was like, is he embellishing? Does this really happen? Did this, you know, I'd never heard about this. So I started digging around. And back then, that was like 10 years ago, there was very little information online, but you could find it. So then I, but you had to know what you were looking for because this history has really been buried um, for many reasons. But so that's how I learned about it. I think it was, I mean, the reason the most obvious or the most probable reason why we don't know about it is because of the connection with, the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, and you know they were rejecting methadone maintenance, and they were politicizing users, or former drug users, and right. so the city eventually saw them as a threat. So, I mean, that's that's kind of what the film covers is like, how was this clinic considered a threat? And it center kind of centers around at least the acupuncture part because you you mentioned the acupuncture. 
centers around something called the NADA protocol or NADA. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so today there's um, the NADA protocol is a National Acupuncture Detox Association, which is a standardized five-point year acupuncture protocol that's been used, that's being used all over the world to treat people with anxiety, trauma, and heroin withdrawal symptoms. Wow. And it was and it was founded in 1985 by this white doctor named Dr. Michael Smith. But what Dr. Michael Smith was at the Lincoln Detox in the South Bronx with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords in the 70s. And then after that clinic got closed by the city in 78, Michael Smith revamped it in 1985, but didn't give credit to the real history. So the, pro- so the film is really about like, this is where this history really comes from. You know, it's from these people who have been written out of the history because they've been criminalized for their political views and... Right. Re- really, really criminalized, too. I mean, your your documentary gets in into it, but we're talking long term prison sentences, like not just a smear campaign. I mean, they 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 were dragged out profoundly. I mean, their lives were completely dismantled for trying to help people. It's it's fascinating and sad. Yeah, people always point to the Black Panthers carrying guns as the point where the government got scared. And no, I think it's when they started giving out free breakfast and things of the like. And I, I'm assuming you looked into the Black Panthers a whole lot for this documentary. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about them and similar groups that were really active in the 60s and 70s? Well, it's like what you just said. They were their primary, you know, they they... They were providing services for the community that they that like services like free breakfast programs, um, daycare centers. You know they were giving they had free health clinics. They were providing services to a community that wasn't that was being underserved by the government. And J. Edgar Hoover in 1969 said that the Black Panthers were the greatest threat to the nation <laughs> because they were organizing on their own outside the system. Lovely. I've got a question for you. I mean, you're Canadian, correct? Yes. So, uh, you know, this is such an interesting topic for a Canadian to to cover in my, for anybody outside of America to to cover. So I want to know what your draw to this story. I mean, it's a fascinating story all on its own. I get why you're like, this totally needs to be a documentary, but this is a real deep dive into a wacky country that lives south of you. <laughs> so I, I, you know, as a Canadian, how did you process this story and, and how does it change or solidify your views of the United States? I mean, it's a big question and I'm sorry, but that's <laughs> what I'm most curious about. <laughs> I mean, it is a big question, but I think it touches, because this, this project touches on so many different themes and I think access to healthcare, like we have free healthcare here. It's not never been an issue for anyone. I know nobody's ever had to pay for like, we, it's just not, it's not something we have to worry about. We don't have to worry about having insurance. We don't have to worry about, um, you know, think twice about going to the doctor or spend money to have a baby or all these things, you know, like it's just not a thing. And also the criminal justice system, like it's in the U S it's so we, we have political prisoners. We have, we still have systemic racism, um, obviously here too, but everything is just so, the history is just so deep. And I think the racial system in the U S with medic, I I mean, I don't want to say that Canada is that much different, but I would just focus on the medical, like healthcare for one thing, but sure. Political, like it's just, 
to it's, con- it's got to be confounding to just be like, why the hell wouldn't you want this for the people? Why, why wouldn't you want your population healthy? Like why? So I, I understand that. Does the systemic racism aspect look more flagrant from the outside as somebody who isn't from the United States compared to other places? Well, definitely now, but I think I'm not, I'm, it's when I first started this project. So I, my entry point in this film was meeting my acupuncturist much sure writing and then writing letters to Dr. Matula Shakur, who's incarcerated. So visiting him. Wow. Since getting to know him and really diving into the story, like I'm not sure that the racism was and now it's in such sharp focus that I just see white supremacy everywhere. I'm so aware of, I'm, and it's hard for me to think back how I saw things before. Maybe there was some, I was a little bit more, it was easier to not see it before. Again, this was before, when I started, this was before Trump and before the events. (laughs) They were coming to the forefront eventually anyway. Um, You you went on quite a journey with this documentary. It sounds like, (laughs) like personally. So that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think what's interesting is just how political healthcare is. Yeah. Essentially it's like, it's, so it makes sense that the Black Panthers, now it makes so much, it makes, it's so clear why the Black Panthers and the, and the Young Lords were concerned with healthcare because interesting, there is so political and it's about taking care of the needs of the people. If you're vulnerable, if your health is at the hands of the government and you don't have access to that, then that makes you so vulnerable. Like, yeah. so their, their goal essentially was let's, um, not just they were interested in not just learning acupuncture to treat addiction, but also to be towards self-determination. Like how can we treat our own people? So we're not on this medical system that abuses us, that has exploited us. Um, So there was a lot now it's like, Oh yeah, it makes total sense. You know, like they did things like the young Lords took over a, before they took over the hospital to do this acupuncture program, they took over, they hijacked an x-ray truck that they had going around Manhattan and it never went above 110th Street. And there was t- TB issues in the South Bronx. So they went to like upper, the Upper West Side, took over the truck, and the, the x-ray technicians were on board with them. So they went up to the South Bronx and started treating people. And the, these were like 19, 20-year-old activists who were doing this. It's amazing. It so inspiring. Yeah. Around the time this was all happening, someone else decided methadone was a viable treatment for heroin uh can you talk about some of the drawbacks of that because that's all that's a thing that's always seemed weird to me it doesn't seem like so much of a treatment as just like a government sanctioned version of heroin i've never understood how that could possibly help well from my understanding um and talking to dr peter Bourne, who was involved in drug policy under reagan and carter sorry not reagan nixon right carter um, it's really clear that methadone was like used as a part of a political campaign. It was a way to say like, cause it, heroin was such a huge social problem in New York and San Francisco and other cities. The city blamed crime on heroin. Like everything in New York at that time was really blamed on heroin addiction. Um, <laughs> that's what made the city so dangerous. So these politicians were offered, you know, doctors were saying methadone is a a way to treat this social problem. We just give them methadone. They won't want to go out. People won't want to steal. It'll reduce crime. It'll, it's like a band-aid way of like fixing a situation. So there was so, these like things that people believed in and people believed that heroin addiction was 
kind of a chronic illness that in a sense, you know, like there was a different attitude towards it. So the me- the chemical treatment was, you know, just, it just made sense at that time. So they started putting a lot of money into methadone programs, but the Black Panthers and the Young Lords were like, wait a second, why should we, why are you trying to treat these problems with another drug? And they recognized that, you know, you have to go once a day, like you're to get your methadone treatment. So you're dependent on the state, yeah. you can't travel anywhere. They understood it was for, you know, that it was, addictive you had to go through withdrawal symptoms to get off of it there were side effects you know like wow. the, so they were the first you know like we we see that more now there's more understanding it's still the the standard treatment for heroin and opioid addiction like methadone is still huge now but they understood the pharmaceutical like who it served most they understood the you know the system the how it was like um how the government and the pharmaceutical companies could capitalize and exploit people and control people with methadone yeah. Right. So Oof. they set up an alternative, which was called the Lincoln Detox. Was it Lincoln Detox Center? Well, the the, the real name was the Lincoln Detox People's Program, but then okay. it became known just as Lincoln Detox. And can you talk a little bit about how that came about and who was behind it? It's kind of crazy. So basically in 1970, the, the Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx was completely dilapidating, like children were getting lead paint poisoning. There was rats. There was like people who were, you know, there was major net medical neglect at this hospital. The neighbors called it the butcher shop. Um, it was, you know, condemned 25 years earlier. The building it was in such terrible shape. So these, and they, it was a predominantly Puerto Rican neighborhood and the staff didn't, nobody really spoke Spanish. Like it was just really not, and it was served, it was there for four, it was like serving 400,000 people. So it was just like a really, you know, a substandard hospital. So the, the young Lords and the Black Panthers took it over to have a say, like, cause they wanted community involvement and in how to care for the community. They wanted Spanish speaking doctors. They wanted a tr- drug treatment center that wasn't methadone maintenance. They had a bunch of asks. Well, what I love about what you captured here is, and not to just <laughs> completely tell everybody what's in the documentary, but you know, you you had these women that collected over two thousand specific complaints about the hospital before they wage this takeover, which I don't want to get into detail in because it's amazing, and I just wanted to wash over people the way it washed over me, but that was their leverage. And it was brilliant because it was like, yeah, you can tell us that we're doing these things, but we collected 2000 egregious complaints about this medical facility. And that's what leveraged all of the change. And I just, it's incredible. I had no idea this happened. No idea. It's totally amazing because they were all, they they really were serving the community in that direct way. It's like, we're not going to decide what people need. We're going to ask them what they need. And we're going to present these demands to the hospital. And if they don't, they gave them a year like they to do something. And then finally, they're like, well, we have no choice. We have to take this into our own hands and demand. And at that time, like they, it's pretty incredible that they were able to negotiate with the city and the hospital. Um, yeah. Like, it's like a whole other era, <laughs> you know, like, I can't imagine this happening now. Like they were, there was a lot of communication. They were able to have some of their demands met for at least until the end of the seventies when things changed again. Yeah. That, like, that whole sorry. hospital takeover scene in the documentary is fascinating. I love that so much. Sorry to cut you off, Caitlin. Go ahead. No, no. I, I was just kind of musing about the, I couldn't help but think about the activism that I see now um, 
And uh, this was so specific. Everything about the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, everything they did came with such a specific aligned action. And it was really inspiring to watch and to see how effective that is. But also it just kind of made me think about a lot of the activism I see now. And I feel like so much of that energy gets diluted by things like social media. And then the, the point of it gets lost, the messaging gets weird, and everything kind of falls apart. I, I, would you agree with that, Mia? I mean, would, with, what you, with what you spent your time putting together here, what are, the, what are the differences and parallels in activism that you see now? Well, I mean, I like what you said. It's true, like, that at that time, I, it was very community localized. You know, yeah. they, and that's, I don't even know if we can go back to there right now because everything is, mm-hmm. uh, because of social media, the, uh, I think if we look at the activism back then and what, these groups in particular were trying to do they were just lo- they were looking around their community and trying to see how they could serve the people around them directly and i think that model is important i think people want to go back to that we the community knows best their own community yeah and yeah. i think with policing and defund the, you know, the defund the police movement it's it it's kind of going back to that like we ask let's find out in our community what the best way is to deal with certain needs and yeah I I agree with you I think people get overwhelmed by how big these problems feel and you know from the standpoint of an American you know there is a lot of local clout that you can build I mean there's a reason why so many different layers of government exist within a community and then a city and then a county and because you can get really really specific if you want to but I can't help but wonder if because of social media the ideas get so broad stroked. That's not even a term. They turn into broad strokes. Thank you very much. They get broad stroked. That sounded very sexual. Sure did. I don't know what broad stroked is, but I'm sure there was an item at the Bunny Ranch for it. Okay. So it turns into broad strokes. And uh, I mean, maybe I am just speaking for myself. It's just is like, man, like how can I make an impact? And I feel like this documentary is such a great reflection on very extreme activism. Like, like this is, this is radical activism, not extreme, um, and effective activism. I just admired the focus of the, of this community. Also side note, I have a crush on half of the people in this documentary. (laughs) What a bunch of charismatic individuals. Oh my God. Were you just like, sorry, what did you say? (laughs) Half of the time. (laughs) I was in awe with everyone. Like every time I was doing an interview, I was like, you know, it, everybody is is so charismatic there um i think what's what's i mean we just made this point but this direct it's like their goal they set goals yeah like one goal at a time and they did it and it was goals that were within reach yeah i feel like i only see that with like fitness people on instagram now like just (laughs) set manageable goals and this is a spinach day or whatever with this i was just like oh my god all these people look like they can dance and they're handsome and they're beautiful and oh my god you know and then also they're like gonna take over a fucking hospital like these are the coolest people i've ever seen in my life and they were like 20 yeah Yeah. i was such an idiot at 20 i i like i was thinking about that watching the documentary about how i once got my car towed because i forgot to pay my registration at 20 that's who i was at 20 like i wasn't helping anybody anyway good job caitlin (laughs) so One of the things I found really interesting about this is after they would detox people and get them off of drugs, then they would move into trying to get 
those people a little more involved in revolutionary things and helping the community. And, oh man, how much did the government hate that? Well, that's exactly, you know, they were being, so the programs that they developed, the, the, the Lincoln Detox Drug Detoxification Program was run, you know, it was funded by the Health and Hospital Corporation. And the um, so it was, the state was funding it. And then, you know, by 1975, they started to have major problems with getting funding. And um, because the city was trying to get out of it, they were like, they were, because their model of treatment was not something that was really understood, you know, like typical methadone maintenance treatments, you could just say, okay, the methadone costs this much. Yep. And it all made sense, but they were doing these political education classes, but they were like community therapeutic groups where people would talk about identity, racism, you know, uh, who drugs serve in a society. So it was, what's, what I found interesting was like, a lot of the models of drug therapy or 12-step programs, it's a lot of it is like, you have to take personal responsibility. So everything's like, you know, in the eye, like, you know, this is my yeah thing. But they were framing drug addiction in a cult- socioeconomic situation. So it was less like, you know, we're um, oppressed, you know, how drugs serve uh, in a oppressed, like t- to oppress people. Yeah. Um, so they were really putting it in this this context where they were trying, where they were empowering the community to come together and to resist drugs as a political action to towards self determination. So this, of course, like the city of New York and including Assemblyman Chuck Schumer, who <laughs> called the program a rip off drug treatment program and accuse them of indoctrinating drug addicts into domestic terrorists. Like, so I don't know if they use the word domestic terrorists, but they were, you know, sure. There was a lot of, I'm not sure if that word was used that back then, but that's sort of, that was the meaning. Right. And so, you know, the program basically like was, they shut it down in 1978. So it lasted eight years and it's pretty amazing that this political, yeah, program lasted that long you know like they were they were overt about the political classes and they were like this is what we're doing this is what we have to do and you know they weren't doing anything wrong they were helping people they were helping people they were educating people they were telling them about their their rights as tenants um they were providing like transportation to visit relatives in jail or prisons like they were doing so many so many things like rent strikes um just you know like they were they were, it was a holistic treatment to addiction. Yeah. It was everything, you know, one of the, one of the parts of the documentary that really struck me was there's an individual that, that you interviewed, um, who was getting acupuncture today or today in, in a, you know, and it was so sweet to hear him talk about how the acupuncture helped him with his anger and then how helping with his anger helped him uncover that he wasn't angry. He was just sad. And it really registered with me how much emphasis of like healing there, there was in this community and really viewing this wave of heroin addiction as an attack on beautiful pieces of their community and recovering the individual was part of recovering the community. And I just, I thought it was so sweet and, and, and beautiful and so different from the recovery culture that I grew up around. I mean, I'm not an addict, but my dad, spent a lot of time in AA and it's, 
it's all very individual, you know, I, 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 me, me, me kind of stuff. And yeah, they're all there for each other. And listen, if somebody's listening to this and AA has helped you, I'm not trying to knock you off that, that cart by any means, but it just is such a different way to look at sobriety and ensuring that when these people held their hand out for help, somebody was there to grab their hand is really what that model looked like to me. It was very beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, not thanks. you did a good, you did a good job. You know, you did a good job capturing it. No, I was moved. No. Yeah. It was beautiful. That wasn't a question, Caitlin. Keep I'm it together. Sorry. I'm a podcaster. God damn it. I'm just going to talk sometimes. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously. And six, one, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, Hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So all of that helping the community gets the Lincoln Detox basically wrapped up in COINTELPRO. Nothing more dangerous than helping people in the United States. Absolutely not. And (laughs) COINTELPRO is a thing we've talked about on various episodes we've never done a whole episode about it can you just for people who are unfamiliar can you talk a little bit about what COINTELPRO was yeah so COINTELPRO was a secret FBI program that surveyed it started out surveying with secret surveillance of commun people that were alleged communists communists yeah um, and sorry, it's hard to say basic things. Um, and then it really attacked, they really start to heavily survey Black nationalist groups, Puerto Rican groups, student movements, like any sort of new left or uh, movements that that the government saw as a threat to the American stability of the, the time, the late 60s, early 70s. So the government launched campaigns to also specifically against the Black community. They had a mission to disrupt and neutralize and prevent the rise of a Black messiah. So they were really, that's why they were surveying Malcolm, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, like Fred Hampton, any particularly Black leaders who they felt could rise and unify uh, the Black movement. So they wanted to stop this. So Dr. Matulu Shakur ended up on this list. I mean, so many people were being surveyed, like people like James Baldwin was surveyed, even like... um, Sorry, James Baldwin. (laughs) Yeah, the list of people who were followed by COINTELPRO is insane. Yeah, it is. It's like jazz musicians, like everyone. Well, and what's interesting about it too is uh, there's a gentleman in your documentary that really beautifully articulates the the way heroin divided the community and create and did create crime and did create gang factions and things like that. So that that was real. And so there, you know, and and many systems benefited from that divisive um, element. And to have someone come along and say like, let's get you clean and bring you into this fold and create a community. Like, uh Oh, that's, that's not good. And also like, let's not forget there's a lot of money in methadone. There's, I mean, that's really what this was about is in my opinion is like making sure methadone still had a a place to be (laughs) in these communities. Well, by, and by 1975, they were, they 
practically stopped prescribing methadone, and that's when the heat, that's when they really came under attack. Oh, okay. In the early days, they did a 10-day methadone detox, which was still against the norm, because that's the only way they could get funding. And most programs were methadone maintenance, so you would just go every day. And they did the methadone detox, which was a 10-day detox program. And they, they... the reason, and it sort of goes hand in hand with, with how they learned about acupuncture because it's very, you know, it's very traumatic and like painful yeah. to go through withdrawal. And they saw people would get nervous, you know, like about day eight, day nine. So they started to introduce the acupuncture at first to help people e- help ease the transition. And then people started to just come in just for the acupuncture. Adam, did this make you want to get acupuncture? Oh, 100%. It really made me want to get acupuncture. (laughs) Well, being that this is a conspiracy podcast, I also, just a couple weeks ago, in researching Jonestown and MKUltra, it was suggested in one source that I saw, and I I don't know how much I believe this, but uh, it was suggested that at one point the CIA happened upon this acupuncture technique that opens up a person's psychic abilities and that now they just Man, commit, which I don't know if sign that's me. Up. I mean, I'm yeah, ready to, I'm like, ready. I want I'm ready. all, I want all of that, but yeah, me too. What I we're talking about today seems a little more possible. I mean, you're than right. That. There's a little bit more of the rubber hitting the road here. <laughs> I can't argue with it, but you know, Hey, that, 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 that Eastern medicine, there's a lot to it. I'm just saying, Internet police, I know you can hear me. Let's try it. I mean, you know, hey, let's I'll do the psychic acupuncture and let's see what happens. I'll do it all. Uh, do it all. The, the kind of a change in course here. Uh, <laughs> Ronald, Ronald Reagan is the fucking oh. worst. And there is a great scene in the documentary of him interacting yeah. with a group of black people like the awful racist he was. How did you find this footage? <laughs> I well. What, what? I couldn't believe how great that clip was. And also, I've never seen a president. I've never seen footage of a president like that ever in my life. And also, what was his role in all, all of this? If you can talk about that, too. Yeah, well, I, I just have to do a shout out to Edmund Duff, who was my archival producer who found who. Wow, found- that guy rules. I mean, you guys are a great team. I have to say that, that I don't know how he found that. I've never seen footage like that. I know I've already said this of a president in my life. And I, so Reagan, um, after the shutdown, so Lincoln detox shut down in 1978, Dr. Matula Shakur and and many of the acupuncturists started BANA, which was the Black Acupuncture Advisory Association of America. Wow. Look Uh, at you. That was really good. That was good. (laughs) And they were a private clinic in Harlem. So they had, they no longer had subsidies that the Lincoln hospital had. They were on their own and they became more of a full body acupuncture clinic doing the, the detox, but just treating everything. Sure. Um, They were certified as Matulu had gotten his degree from Montreal and they were they were doing real medicine full body and at that time when reagan came in in the early 80s there was a wave of repression that was coming down on all these the leftover activist groups of the 70s let's say and so reagan represents that sort of shift you know like you have the community like the early 70s the late 60s that gave birth to a lot of um community programs and then it's like Reagan comes in, everything's, you know, like he's just 
the way he the way he amped up the war on drugs, like what he did for social services, like just so that sort of thought he comes in there to represent that collide. And you see him visiting the South Bronx to oh give God. <laughs> talk to the people. And he's just he's just so you just see the total disrespect, the total like disdain even for this it, community of the South Bronx. He's it, just he's so acrid. I mean, it is like I, I, I couldn't believe it. I watched it twice because I was like, whoa, this is the spirit of it that I always knew was there. And I have never actually seen it in action. Yeah. You know, because all of his stuff is always was so well produced and executed. I mean, you got to give him that. I, it, you know, all of his speeches, all of his appearances, he was so quaffed and calm and, and you know, glossy. And <laughs> this he was a Ronald Reagan was a less sloppy Trump. Like everything about his policies and his rhetoric was the same as Trump. He was just an actor instead of Trump. I have to say though, even this, I have to say this footage of Reagan yelling at that woman is, is more embarrassing than anything I saw Trump do on camera. Mostly because I guess with Trump, I kind of saw it coming from a hundred miles away and I never took him seriously. He, it's so frayed and embarrassing. He looks like he's yelling at someone to get off of his lawn. Like for real. It is. It is insanely condescending. Like so she's just asking, what are you going to do for us? And he's like, I can't do anything until you elect me. It's like, that is not how elections work, sir. Oh my gosh. And he still won in a landslide. Crazy. Yeah. But I think that that scene represents like the eighties, like the tension, you know, the, 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 you know, the kind of, he brought in this new wave of hard on crime. Is that the term? Like, yeah. Tough on crime crime. stuff. Um, And, you know, like the whole Nixon started the war on drugs and Reagan just amped it up completely. And just this sort of like Christian, I don't know, like just this wave uh, ideological conflict with, yeah. And, and also just he really represents the the criminality coloring the addict as the criminal. Definitely. Um, you know, he really solidified that, you know, when you're fighting a war on drugs, you're fighting the drug addict, you know. And, and that was the other thing that's so remarkable about this program is that it's so integrated and and recognizing there's a human being stuck in this rather than. Uh, an accomplice to a, to a insidious movement in these communities, you know, and he really does just come in there. Like he's talking to criminals. It's un, it's unreal. I, it's really crazy. Well, in that scene, cause he's, you know, he's talking to this, this woman in the South Bronx and you see in, in the midst of like the South Bronx as the epitome of urban decay. So like the, oh my God, it looks like Berlin. I mean, yeah. well, that was, <laughs> that was like- New York in the seventies and eighties. It was especially wild. Bronx, yeah. And he's talking to her. It's like, he's criminalizing the poor as well. You know, like he's talking to her, like he, she's. Oh yeah. But welcome to America. Awful. We can, uh, it, that that's a whole other documentary criminalizing <laughs> the poor in general, but you're doing a great job braiding a lot of these issues together with this, with this one. It's tough. And, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. That's why it's, I mean, there was, it, it was a fast, yeah, it's a, fascinating era um <laughs> i don't know if that's the right way to say it <laughs> no it's but yeah it's it I is mean, fascinating i feel like the american government in general from the end of world war ii through like at least the mid 80s is fascinating in a really bad way it's it's almost like a true crime thing where if you dig into it you're just kind of marveling at the achievements of master criminals like there's 
nothing. We, it's not even a cold case. We're never going to bring them to justice. It's just like, this is what, this is what our government does. I've always wondered if that is why we have our fascination with organized crime and, and the mafia and just this subconscious understanding that we're watching something else play out. It's a way to project the way we deal with the rest of American politics. You know, there's that group, there's that great line in the Godfather where Kay is like, you know, so-and-so is working with politicians, not murderers. And and Michael says, you know, who's, who's being naive now? Okay. You know, it's just, it's so, it's so fascinating. And that's, that's all governments in my opinion, to a certain degree, but, but we were, we were, we were on one for a while there. I mean, we really, uh, Oh, Oh yeah. I'm glad that stopped. Me we, too. We I'm glad de- it's over. I'm, I'm glad we're done yeah, with I'm, all of that. I'm glad our government is so much better now. Oh, so totally. It's all better. There's <laughs> there's an kind of an inciting incident that happens in this documentary where, or, I mean, it happened in the world, but there's an armored truck robbery and three people are killed and the government uh, or the authorities, however you want to say it, blame this on leftist activists. And I have two questions about that. One, do you think they were really that deeply involved in this crime, the people who were accused of it? And two, can you just talk a little bit about what happened after that? Well, it's a, it's a very complicated um, case. So uh, I'll just speak to, uh, so basically in 1981, there was this, it's been like a famous Brinks armed truck robbery. There were people who, a few people arrested on the scene who were members of the Weather Underground and the Black Liberation Army, the Black Panthers. And there was, when the the government laid, basically accused Dr. Matula Shakur of being the ringleader of this organized crime, this group of people. And what I can say is with Dr. Shakur, there was no evidence connecting him to the scenes of the crime, but they did have, they do have pamphlets with his finger, political pamphlets with his fingerprints on it that were found in safe houses. So they allege that because all these people were connected politically, they, they said this is an organized crime and then they charged them under the RICO Act. And when you get charged under the RICO Act, you don't like, the, it's, a lot of it is on, you don't need hard evidence. Like it's like a really hard, they're really hard cases to fight. And so um, Matulu, they were all sentenced to lengthy prison sentences. Matulu was sentenced to 60 years. Um, and then a bunch of other people were also sentenced. So what we try and do is really just focus on, you know, like why is this case political and how do the sentences measure in terms of like the crime that's been committed and you know like how much are they being prosecuted for their criminal actions because the government denies that there's any political prisoners yeah i think there's a thing that you mentioned at the very end of the documentary that i think speaks to how much of a political prisoner he is which is that he's been diagnosed with bone marrow cancer and has been denied compassionate release twice that's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Well, it's like, you know, now with mass incarceration and the the problem of elder elderlies, elderly people being in, incarcerated and by the FBI's own numbers, people individuals over 70, there's like a 0% chance. I think yeah. it is literally zero of recidivism or like recommitting crimes. So the idea is to 
so it doesn't make sense why they would con continue to incarcerate yeah. them if it wasn't because of a for political reasons. And the judge, I just these are some things that I found out about the American um, legal system that really surprised me was, for instance, the parole board that he goes before. It's been the same people for years. Like he's gone mm. before the parole board to the same people like four times or something. I'm not sure if it's exactly four times, but many times. And the judge who's supposed to sign for his compassionate release is the same judge that sentenced him in 1986. So this 91 year old judge hate who. Wow. Like, so it's just like these things, like you're like, why would you not, how can that be? You know, like what you, it just doesn't feel fair that you would ask the, the sentencing judge to, to I don't need to make this decision. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. I, that's so discouraging to hear. That's very depressing. Yeah. It was for me, it was almost the craziest thing in the documentary. When I saw that, it's like, how much more blatant can you be that there's more to this than just an armored truck robbery? So, another, oh, another go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, I, I got to, but the, another point too, and that we interviewed Susan Rosenberg in the documentary who was also sentenced. I love her. Yeah. She's, a, she's, amazing. I mean, yeah, she what a great. cool lady. Oh my God. And when you see her in the documentary, she's so soft-spoken and petite and like, you know, she's such a kind, loving person. And she was considered one of the America's most dangerous fugitives at one time when she That's was insane. underground. So it's, it's like she she talks about so when she was actually she was indicted under the same case as Matulu, but then they caught her on a different they charged her with a different crime and then once they charged her with a different crime they dropped all the charges in relation to Matulu, which sort of speaks to the lack of evidence right in yeah. that original Brinks case. So it's it's a very complicated to think to talk about and the reason why I don't go into detail because it's. You know, it, it's, yeah, it's just, it's very, well, it's, you know. It's not what your focus was. It could, right. that's yeah. its own documentary. I mean, that really, that could be its own two hour conversation. It, there's it, so much, yeah. There's so much to unpack, unpack in terms of the history. Sure. It's just, it's hard to just sum it up. So the government got really involved in shutting this program down. Were you ever worried that they would somehow intervene to try and shut this documentary down? Or did you have any weird or scary experiences along those lines? I haven't, but I other, you know, it's mostly when I would speak to the contemporaries of Matulu, like a lot of the people who I interviewed did not want to speak on the phone. You know, there was, you could, a lot of people, it's more in my interactions with people from who have been victim victims of COINTELPRO and who lived through that type of surveillance, um, who, you know, told me stories. Luckily, I, I, I may be on some, some lists. I don't know, but nothing, I haven't felt any, I haven't experienced any, anything directly. That's good. That's, that's the answer we want, frankly. Yeah. So that's yeah, good. sometimes I, I really do wonder sometimes if, the FBI and the CIA are just so cocky about having gotten away with stuff like this. Like what's anyone ever going to do? We're not going to bring the FBI to justice over this. So like, are there any threats anymore when it comes to stuff like this? Like what's anyone going to do? Well, I think what's like with uh, the release of Judas and the black Messiah and you know, like there is a lot of talk right now about COINTELPRO. I think there was, 
friend of mine sent me an article last year that even before the release of this film in Teen Vogue, where they were talking about, they had <laughs> talked to, like talked about COINTELPRO. So it's quite no, people really acknowledge it now. When I first started, even when I first started doing this documentary, some of my friends were like, right, you know, like sounds like they thought it was kind of conspiracy theory, but it's actually real. Like, oh, it's, yeah. The yeah. papers were found in, you know, the activists, the anti-war activists found the papers in Media Pennsylvania, exposing COINTELPRO, like this was real. Like there's, you know, we don't know the scope. We don't know all the details, but. Yeah, that that actually brings up another question, which is kind of a more general question, which is what are your thoughts on the term conspiracy theory? Because the, the reason I ask is things like MK ultra COINTEL pro, like even after Jonestown, there were people in the government who were like, did the CIA do that? That's very weird. But now we've seemed to come out this, uh, other end now where anything that's labeled, a conspiracy theory is just kind of immediately discredited. And I feel like things like your documentary are proof that we shouldn't be that quick. Like, and understand I'm not like advocating for QAnon or Sandy hook or anything like that, but we know our government does bad things all the time. And what are your thoughts on, I guess, kind of the demonization of the term conspiracy theory? I mean, I've never really thought of it, but it's in that way, but it's, tr- I'm my experience when I was first pitching this film, which was like, I guess the first time I was started pitching was 2014 or 2015. There was some people who were like, I sort of toned down the COINTEL, like I, I had to be careful yeah. with how I pitched it because of that. Like, I think as soon as it starts, somebody even suggests that it sounds like a conspiracy theory, suddenly it's like questionable. Um <laughs> You know, like people are suddenly open to doubt in a way. Um, but like things like MK Ultra, I went to a press release a few years ago here for uh, the hospital, the McGill Hospital, where they were treating, where they were um, doing. There were some victims from lots of MK Ultra stuff in Montreal yeah, from from yeah. the the hospital and speaking about it, and then just to see there's a class action suit that's going on finally years later. Um, I mean, I think it's 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 a label that can really, you know, like can, can serve the misinformation and to distract people from the truth. Yeah. So it's it's tricky. It's a tricky thing. Yeah. It re- it really is. Yeah. But I also feel like there's a giant swath of particularly Americans that because things are labeled a conspiracy, they also immediately believe them. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I, both of know, the. I, so I feel weird. like. I've said before on this podcast, I feel like both of those reactions are not necessarily healthy. Like (laughs) you can't believe every conspiracy theory, but also you can't trust the government enough to believe that everything that someone calls a conspiracy theory is a conspiracy theory. Like the Iraq war is a conspiracy theory. We went there based on weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. That they knew weren't there. When the police cover up, a police shooting. It's a conspiracy theory. Like it's not that uncommon. And it really like, I hate that things like this ever get labeled as a conspiracy theory, because I'm assuming there's probably documents about this that have been declassified. Like the information is out there. Like, yeah, I think, I think the other thing that would be interesting to see from 
and maybe you got a little bit more information on this in your process, Mia, but just how many other kinds of community-based efforts of socialized medicine have been shut down one way or another? You know, it, was it just this one where there, I mean, was it just convenient that it happened to be connected to the Black Panthers? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just curious if there were other clinics around the country, things like this, that had that much effort to be shut down. I mean, I don't, I don't have like, like specific facts, but I mean, we do know that the Black Panthers were neutralized or stopped for yeah. their programs. They're, yeah. you know, the program, they, and then the, and then this, the, the United States started to serve free breakfast programs in their schools, you know, like in public schools after yeah. the Black Panthers did it. The Black Panthers were also the first to do, to have daycare centers in New I York. I mean, it's wild. I was raised to- told the Black Panthers were only criminals. That's what I was told growing up. I mean, that's just flat out what I was told. And then I saw Forrest Gump and and then later in college, somebody finally was like, mm, you need to spend a little bit more time on this topic. And I was shocked by how wrong I, you know, had been and had been, it was, it's just sad to, to think about actually. Another part of the COINTEL program that was so effective was the misinformation that they, like the stories they would leak to the press. They actually made a the CIA or uh, the FBI or CIA made a fake coloring book that they said was a Black Panther coloring book that to promote, to, to, to give the impression that the Black Panthers were anti-white. And so it's, you can look at it online, but it's like this terrifying coloring book. That's I'm like, not surprised. Uh, and it was this, you know, they didn't, so they were, they went to great lengths to make, a lot of these groups appear like dangerous criminals so that the community would turn against them because they knew they couldn't just go and arrest them for, for, you know, having, giving up free breakfast. So they had to, you know, give them like this, they had to create tension and divide them from fear and fear. So it's like, when you really start looking into it, you're like the resources that went into this, you know, like they must've had like artists on, like just everyone they had like artists on staff, like doing this. Um, really disturbing and why would it stop completely yeah that uh, i feel like it hasn't stopped and people know it hasn't stopped there's things like in new york we know the nypd was running something called the rap squad that was just tasked with following rappers around the city like that's not any different that is the exact same thing and we hear it now and we're like oh that's funny like (laughs) the nypd's following rappers no, that's COINTELPRO still carrying on. Like, it's the exact same thing. And I feel yep. like we've just gotten kind of desensitized to the idea that the government is always watching and they're always especially watching people of color. And we pretend like we hate it, but what do we do about it now? Yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, what do we do? <laughs> well, you're doing something. You made a great documentary about it. So let me want to ask you just from a practical standpoint, how long did it take you to put this together? Because it's so comprehensive. I mean... I mean, it, well, when I first when I first wrote Matulu, it was in 2013, and then I was still finishing deprogrammed, and I started visiting him. He was in he was in a prison outside of LA. But it, it took a good like four or five years to really since the first shoot, and you know, there's always the process of like you you start a demo, you get a little bit of funding to shoot, and um, also there was originally 
Dr. Shakur was supposed to be released in 2016. So the original pitch of the film was like, Matula's going to get out. We're going to film him. Wow. Going back into the community and continuing his work. But the, the government, he did not get released. Uh, they kept him because there was a law that before 1988, if you were sentenced to six years, you, there was a mandatory parole. They changed the rules, let's say. And they're, they're still, you know, he, he didn't get released. So at that point, I was like, okay, well, now what do I do? And I was so emotionally invested in telling the story. And then it became like, okay, let's approach it this way as more of like a, you know, a, a bit of a, a different angle on like, focusing on the political context wow. and trying to find a way to keep Matulu as the center of the film without having any access to him because they would not grant him. He wasn't allowed to, do, we tried to get interviews with him. Wow. Been give, given, he hasn't been granted permission to do an interview since 2003, which again is, wow. That, you know, it's like a political thing. To, yeah, that, to that very much speaks to him being more than just a prisoner. He's a yeah. political prisoner. Like, there's no, like, we let criminals talk about their crimes all the time on true crime shows. And I know how to book them. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's an obvious oh, reason God. why he wasn't allowed to be interviewed for this. Yeah. And that's, again, this is all, yeah. Like speaking to the, you know, this, what it means to be a political prisoner and how they treat political prisoners differently. Like Susan, yeah. a lot of these prisoners, people who are in the film were in held in ice in solitary confinement for years whoa you know separate it from the population that's a thing i feel like in the united states we pretend we don't have we pretend we don't have political prisoners and we very obviously do and i appreciate that this documentary uh sheds some light on things like that like it's not like we know uh, i feel like a lot of people know the government really cracked down on the black panthers and whatnot but i think people feel like that's ended and it clearly hasn't and uh i i thank you for doing this documentary it's really great last question uh where can people watch it and where can people find out more about your other work and do you have any final thoughts so the, the film is available the documentary is available for free in the u.s on vice uh it's shortlist.vice.com well so it's there we'll link to it also okay and i encourage everyone to check out Matuluchakor.com, with it, which is a website run by his family and friends, his support team, and there's updates. Const- there's there's always updates on his health and the case, and you know calls to action for help. Yeah, I mean, there's we can check out other documentaries by by me at istillfilm.com, and I'm now uh, editing a medium length film about a cult I met that live in the desert in Hemet, California. Oh, uh, oh man been filming for a few years i met them while shooting deprogrammed oh wow um, so you would that makes that checks out did you visit so the I, iconic hemet maze stone while you were there i didn't um <laughs> i it's a ridiculous it's, monument it's, don't it's not don't go yeah don't okay. don't um, do that it's i missed it nope um, you didn't miss it you are you just didn't for see it not going i'm sorry go on so yeah, that's what I'm doing now. And I'm working on um, a couple fiction, first fiction projects. <gasps> oh, wow. Oh, that's so nice. exciting. So that's, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for doing the episode. We'll link to where people can watch the documentary. You should watch it. It's really good. 
Uh, Caitlin, do you have anything to, to any final thoughts before we get out of here? Just that Mia's really cool, Adam. Agreed. Have you noticed how cool she is? She's also just very cool. I so would agree. That. I honestly, I really cannot say enough about how much I enjoyed this documentary. A lot of times these are hard watches, you know, and they're, they're not pleasant. They're just infuriating. And I, I think I'm, I think a lot of people are kind of tapped out right now and this doesn't feel that way at all. It's cool. It's interesting. Everybody's super charismatic and it, it is an unbelievable story. Yeah. And that clip of Reagan alone is worth seeing this thing. I, <laughs> it's, it's weirdly satisfying. It's very validating. It's like, yeah, see, I knew it. it. Yeah. You're just like, he is such an, an asshole. Yeah, he really okay. is in this. It's like, like what a, horrible man yeah, yeah he's like just going into people's neighborhoods and screaming at them for being in that neighborhood it's wild yeah that's that's what i want to plug before we get out of here fuck reagan oh he was the worst <laughs> Fuck reagan. yeah agreed caitlin say fuck reagan okay fuck reagan thank you all right we should get out of here <laughs> mia say goodbye thank you guys so much this is so fun <laughs> thank so you nice. for doing it we appreciate it caitlin say goodbye 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 everybody we love you 